From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you Crowdcube and Cedars merge. We look at the outcomes this could have on the crowdfunding space. The FCA's new sandbox is dedicated to overcoming coronavirus challenges and Venmo launches a credit card as Credit Karma launches a checking account. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 469 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the wonderful Sarah Kachansky. How are you doing, Sarah? I am good, thank you. Very good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. We've got so many good stories this week. I'm kind of excited to be uh, to be back on the show. It's been a while since we've done one. Yes, yeah. I've done one with you, certainly, though. I seem to be on a roll. This is my, I think this is my third week in a row. I'm, I'm, I'm getting into the swing of it. Uh, well, the, it was by audience demand. Um, I know we've got a lot of Sarah Kachansky fans out there, so like, uh, let's, let's keep bringing the Sarah. Um, as normal, though, we are joined remotely by some incredible guests. Uh, first up, making a welcome return is Oscar Williams Group, who's senior correspondent over at Yahoo Finance. Welcome back, Oscar. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. I'm currently on uh, day 11 of a 14-day quarantine after going to Croatia, which is, of course, on the naughty list. So I'm going slightly... Uh, mad crawling up the walls here in my flat but uh yeah this is uh great to virtually you know feel like i'm leaving the house by spending time with you guys tonight i'm glad we could make you feel social and cared for oscar that's what this <laughs> show's really all about make oscar feel cared for uh, three more days man you'll be free um and we'll never hear from you can't again, wait man. i can't wait <laughs> And of course, making a welcome return is uh, the one and only Maya Bittner, who is the voice of member of Rich Eye. How are you doing, Maya? Hey, Simon. Thanks for having me today. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm calling in from the West Coast of the US. So it's bright and early for me. Yeah, no, thank you for doing that so early. We're, we're in, we've got like Thursday afternoon vibes going on here and, and you're kind of still in the early coffee. So um, we'll, we'll, try and, uh, we'll try and bring the energy and thank you so much for doing this. It's always hard doing a podcast first thing. So I uh, appreciate that and so many stories to get to. So I'm going to just jump right in on the first one. Uh, Alrighty, this comes from Yahoo Finance. How about that? Uh, Crowdcube and Cedars are due to merge. Their CEOs say the move is about growth, not survival. Um, and it's an all-stock merger that was announced this past Monday. The deal brings together the UK's two biggest equity crowdfunding platforms. Between them, they've helped hundreds of British startups raise more than £2 billion. Uh, the chief executives of both companies say their planned combination will allow them to supercharge growth and combine respective strengths. They told the press that this deal's been in the plans for some time and long before the pandemic hit. Um, some have raised questions about whether it's a bit of a shotgun wedding, given the financial conditions. You know, Crowdcube and Cedars lost more than £7.2 million between them in the last year. Um, and indeed, the Cedars platform dropped by 20% in the early stages of the pandemic. But Cedars annual results published on Tuesday show auditors flagged the business may need to raise money to keep going, particularly given the pandemic impact. Uh, the companies insist the merger was unrelated, of course, to surviving that pandemic. But we had uh, Jeff Koleski, who's the CEO of Cedars, on our live video show, The Newsroom, this Tuesday, the 6th of October, to talk about the merger. So let's hear from him now. There are more businesses starting up, and those businesses in private are staying private longer. And what you what you get, I mean, in one of my investor meetings recently, there was you know, there's almost this bow wave of money which is stuck. And they're looking for, you know, ways to serve that. And um, uh, and so we now have companies that are cap table management tools that are looking to play in this game. Now, 15 to 20 companies that are now clearly stating goals around servicing this segment of private capital, which is very large. And yet we sit here, both of our companies, much more advanced, much larger in being able to serve them, but combined. Actually, we, it allows us to stay on the front foot. You know, one of the key changes in the conversation was the world is changing. The world of investing in private is changing. And if we wait, there's a window that we miss. And so, you know, it was really that was one of the things that unlocked the conversation is, you know, we've been getting to know each other. Um, and the, better, the more we got to know each other, the more we realized, actually, although we compete, um, we had very common views and, and some common cultures in, the, in our businesses that we built and common passions, um, and we did not want to let the opportunity go. Pretty good points there from uh, Jeff about the private markets, Oscar, but what are your thoughts? Is, is this a shotgun wedding? Is it a bit of a rush deal? What are your um, perspectives? 
Well, I mean, I don't think it's a, a rush deal. I, you know, both both parties told me that this is something that's been discussed sort of unofficially for quite a few years and officially now for uh, the the better part of a year. So so I've got no reason not to not to believe that. So I th- it seems like this has been long in the making this deal. Um but I think what's interesting is um Opportunity is perhaps one way to phrase it. Yes, there is an opportunity to go out there and take more of the private private market and play in that space. But another way, potentially, you could frame it is saying uh, necessity rather than opportunity. These guys uh, depend so much on flow, and uh, as you sort of said at the start, there they're, they've uh, see or Cedars has seen activity drop off by about twenty percent in the early stage of the pandemic. Uh, they're already a loss making business, so falling 20% if if as the auditors uh, sort of warn in the the accounts they need they required extra money going to investors and saying hey look i i lose a lot of money and i'm losing you know flow here as well that's not necessarily the best uh, pitch so being able to go and say actually now we're one of the biggest well we are the biggest platform after the combination uh, and we have ambitions to go beyond diversify revenue streams uh, that that's a better pitch, I think. So yes, it's an opportunity, but really, I think it's a necessity as well. They need to diversify. They need to get that scale as well. Sarah, how about you? What are your thoughts? Um, I completely agree with Oscar. I think I think scale is is very necessary. I think um, the two have been doing sort of similar things for quite a while now. Um, and you know, Crowdcube has done very well at establishing a brand. If you like, you know, it can put Brewdog, it can put Monzo, it can put you know, insert a n other here on on its website and and that um that's good for it because as brewdog comes out and emails everybody on its mailing list to say we're rising on crowdcube all those people who just happen to sign up to brewdog's mailing list because they love beer i'm looking at you oscar um they uh, they they find out about crowd crowdfunding so that's great so you can attract customers that way but they had been i think possibly a little bit lagging in the product development side so their their secondary market only launched in the last couple of months whereas see this has been working on that for a while um, I know that, that you you hold by the the argument that the secondary market is necessary for these kind of platforms to succeed because you you kind of you know to the point you know companies have been staying private for longer so there comes a point where you know to Jeff's point rather that that needs to happen um, so yeah. I think I think it makes sense I think they both have strengths I'm intrigued to see what the CMA will say because it kind of creates a monopoly um, yeah the competition regulator is going to be interesting in this one we we had sort of a couple of years ago three major equity crowdfunding platforms there are others still that are a lot lot smaller but these two were the dominant players and now there's one and as you say sarah one was very clearly strong on the big name brands that were doing their crowdfunding there and the other one was strong on the secondary market but in the past couple of years it's been interesting that uh the crowdfunding was not something companies did because they needed the money necessarily. Uh, it was a part of their marketing. You know, Series A plus companies, Series B and C, you were seeing them doing this as a way of giving back to their community and their members and, and kind of bringing, uh, bringing people on that journey. And there's kind of a financial inclusion story there that's, that's kind of interesting. Maya, can I ask a question? Um, that, as Simon said, that these, these platforms are so good for building communities over here. Do you think it's something that US companies could benefit from this idea? Like I know Chime has a huge community and very, very loyal customers. Do you think that giving those customers the opportunity to also be part owners of the company would be an interesting idea? Do you think it would work over there? Right. The, the the community angle is really exciting and there's a lot of enthusiasm for that. I actually worked for a company that was trying to do this in the United States in 2008, so 12 years ago, it was called Sprout, S P R O W T T. <laughs> the terrible name. Classic spelling. Yeah. Um, but, and the, they had, you know, with the US um, and the regulation here, what we were doing is really automating all of the paperwork in order to create a shell company that is what our user then like the users of different companies could actually um, contribute to and own something. And their motto was always, you know, you can loan money to people on Kiva in developing nations, um, but you can't invest in your neighbor's coffee shop or the stuff that's, that's a part of your everyday life. And so um, I think that that's where I'm most interested in this is for the small businesses. 
I think it would just feel so much better to like help support your friend's businesses and to be an owner and to do well when they do do well. Mm, there's no easy platform for that. It's still incredibly hard and paper-based and manual and, and really, really challenging. Uh, but Oscar, the, the, the volumes and the revenues of these businesses you know, has been somewhat limited. Do you think that's uh, because it's the UK is quite small? Um, there's only so many companies on there. Is it timing? What, what do you think's the re- what's been holding these guys back um, in, to, to growing more? I think it's probably a combination of the fact that the UK is quite a small market and uh, there is, up until now, there's been a bit of a ceiling on um, this market. I mean, as you say, it's been growing. We're seeing more later stage companies tap uh, this sort of crowdfunding model. But for many years, it's been a very early stage part of the business. So even as the numbers grow, the, the amounts might not necessarily rise that much because you're just seeing lots of very small companies raise yeah. pretty minimal amounts. Um, and I think that's, again, why they want to sort of expand their uh, suite of offerings to encourage companies to stay longer with this model. I mean, when I was uh, interviewing the guys, um, Jeff mentioned, he said, we're not as big as AIM yet. AIM, of course, is the junior market of the London Stock Exchange and uh, is, is well, it's, it's faded arguably in, in recent years, but it used to be the sort of go-to place for more of the sort of startup entrepreneurial businesses. Typically, you know, if you wanted to go uh, do a mining exploration in somewhere and you weren't entirely sure what, 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 what you would find, you would go and uh, raise some capital on AIM and then off you go. Uh, So I think, yeah, long term, they'd like to raise the ceiling on the market to try and increase it. And I suppose just quickly on, I mean, that also raises an interesting question. And I imagine what it's going to be their line of attack for when they go to the CMA. You know, what market do they play in? Are they just crowdfunding or are they uh, the equity market more broadly, in which case they compete with the London Stock Exchange, they compete with, you know, international capital flows, all sorts. And it's the private equity side in the startup space in the tech sectors in particular, which has secondary market has always been difficult for. And and they when we were on the newsroom, Sarah, the the both uh, the both the companies made the point around financial inclusion. Uh, it, with companies going to IPO ever later and ever later, the person on the street misses out on that growth. And crowdfunding potentially in a secondary market allows people into that space and maybe makes them more liquid. Do, do you buy that? And, and what are your thoughts? I don't know that it buys the kind of financial inclusion in the sense of they get a chance to get in on the big things before they're too big, if that makes sense. like we're not. I don't necessarily think it's going to make billionaires or billionaires or whatever the people who bought you know microsoft stock that the day it it was available are nowadays um but i do think it's an interesting from a financial inclusion point of we have seen over the last uh sort of whatever whatever month we're on now is it six seven months pandemic anyway um more people have two things more time and more money now not everybody has more money Mm -hmm. but there is a percentage of people who are not going on holiday, who are not socializing, who are not spending money on commuting, who all of a sudden have a bit more money. They have kept their jobs because, you know, they work in an industry that allows them to work from home. And they're looking for things to do with that money. Um, savings accounts are pretty shocking right now in the UK. I don't think interest rates are that much better anywhere in the world, to be honest with you. Um Yeah, Maya's shaking her head, so it's not great in the US either. We have seen um, a huge migration of people towards the the self-directed investment apps, so the free trades, the Robin Hoods, even people like Cargroves, Lansdowne, and even in the UK, the bigger banks that have kind of um, the automatic wealth management portfolios, you know, Barclays has one, Halifax has one, et cetera, et cetera. People looking for something else to do with their spare cash. They can't spend it. They don't know what's going to happen next. They're uncertain. Let's find a way to make it grow for us. Um, And I think that that, uh, the the new company, whether it's going to be I don't know. Did you come up with any good names for whatever it's going to be? Crowdcube seeders? Crowd eaters or something. Crowd eaters. Crowd eaters. Seed funders. I think seed funders probably better. Um, is, is a real option there because people are looking around. I've got a bit more money. I'm probably more willing to take a risk right now because I've got a bit more than I had before. What am I going to do with it? Oh, that's interesting. And then, and to Maya's point, I'm really passionate about A, B, C, D. That could be beer. It could be financial inclusion. It could be coffee. It could be 
pet products. Who knows? There's all these amazing companies on there. Um, I think it's really well placed to capitalize from that and from a financial inclusion point of view that gets more people into investing. Um, and the more diverse people's portfolios are, so they've got a bid in savings, a bid in bonds, a bid in free trade, a bid in you know crowdfunding, that, that's great. It's, it's a good, healthy way to manage your money um, and it gets more people involved in investing. And you know, the great thing about these, these platforms is you can just do a little bit. You can do 50 quid or 20 quid. I think some or, of them even go down to a fiver. Pounds, yeah. yeah. So you just try it and see how it goes. And, you know, if you've got a bit, obviously never invest money that you're not prepared to lose. But <laughs> right, I do think that's a good point, right? Like it is quite a bit riskier to invest in uh, companies like this. Uh, so personally, I'm pretty excited about the long-term view here. And there's some sort of, right? So there's many tax advantage retirement structures that you can use in the United States. Um, and there's some cool startups. One is called Alto that helps facilitate letting people do self-directed retirement accounts and invest those into private companies, early stage companies, going through AngelList and things like that. And I think that's a really nice balance because it's like, yes, financial inclusion, let's open up investing to more people, but let's do it in their retirement accounts, which is going to be the longest time horizon, and they can kind of absorb more risk. They're not going to get you know, their housing taken away from underneath them um, by investing in these riskier startups with short-term capital. Uh, very, very wise and an interesting shout out there to an interesting company. Uh, it, it's also interesting as well that, Sarah, you were sort of talking about the culture in the UK. Uh, it hadn't been normal to talk about investing in that thing. I think in the US, it's a little bit more normal when you uh, sort of come up through the middle classes that certainly in tech, you sort of start getting into a little bit of angel investing on the side and there's more of a network. The UK doesn't really have that. And in a way, Crowdcube sort of became that for the fintech community that you've heard of and you know these companies there isn't really the angel investor network but people have a little bit less cash but they can sort of go here so um let's keep watching this one it'll be an interesting story to to watch it um develop um i'm going to move us to the next story though and this one comes directly from the fca.org uh, um, and they're setting a coronavirus challenge for new sandbox applicants so they've opened uh, application windows for two sandbox services to support innovative firms tackling challenges caused by the pandemic so two sandboxes are the cohort seven of the regulatory sandbox and a pilot of the new digital sandbox initiative, which is quite interesting. So there are three key areas in these initiatives. Um, one, preventing fraud and scams. Two, supporting financial resilience of vulnerable customers. Three, improving access to finance for small and medium-sized enterprises. The digital sandbox pilot aims to support earlier stage innovation where products and solutions are still in development and not at the stage where they're ready to be tested. The idea here is that you've got a, a digital environment that you can go in and play with synthetic data and you can get access to um, stubbed APIs with the regulator watching you while you're still early stage. But to find out more about this, we spoke to Francesca Hopwood-Road, who is the head of RegTech and Advanced Analytics at the FCA. Let's hear from her now. As the FCA, we have a keen interest in helping innovative firms and solutions get to market. This has the benefit of offering a wider range of products to consumers and firms, introducing new thinking into long-standing challenges and increasing competition in the market. Through our conversations over the years with regtechs and fintechs, we know that making the leap from proof of concept to proof of value can be challenging, essentially getting your foot in the door to be able to demonstrate that your idea or product has merit to funding partners or potential vendors. A key missing rung on the ladder that has come up time and time again in our conversations is having access to data to develop and test new solutions. This week, with the City of London Corporation, we have launched the pilot of a digital sandbox aimed at helping firms to develop solutions and challenges for arising from the COVID-19 pandemic in the areas of detecting and preventing fraud and scams, supporting the financial resilience of vulnerable consumers, and improving access to finance for small and medium-sized enterprises. Successful applicants will have access to features and tools, including high-quality data assets and an API marketplace to help them develop and test their ideas. Equally important is the community we are building around the initiative, with interested parties able to observe the solutions as they're being developed, as well as offering their skills and knowledge to help the participants as they work. Applications open now until the 30th of October. Please visit digitalsandboxpilot.co.uk. That's digitalsandboxpilot.co.uk to register and apply. 
Check it out, folks. All right, um, Sarah, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, the FCA has been doing quite a lot for a while on, on we know our uh, sort of regulatory sandbox. What do you think the digital sandbox really means and, and, and changes? I think, as far as I understand it, um, the idea is that it's those earlier stage companies, um, which I think is really interesting. So um, I've, I've done some work with the FCA, not not work with it. They, they invite uh, people in the industry to come in and, and sort of give opinions on, on the sandboxes and things. And, and I've been lucky enough to be in a couple of those sessions. Um, and a lot of what gets bounce back is that the, you have to kind of be quite far along in your proposition before you're sort of almost eligible for, for the sandbox before you can you can tick the boxes um, and actually sometimes you want support before that you want you to know if you how much how much money to go back to the original point should you invest in this thing before you find out if it's going to work or it's not going to work um, and if this new digital sandbox can help those those earlier stage companies um it works both ways, right? Either work out if they're going to work or not work. But if they're going to work, then that then having the, I don't know, the FCA stamp, uh, seal of approval, having basically having said you've been in the sandbox, um, so you've had, you know, some help with that and you've had some early stage guidance, probably makes your business proposition a little bit more attractive to then if you are going to get to the next stage and go out and look for some funding. Um, so I, I think it kind of, it takes it down a level. Um, and I think that's, that's really interesting and really exciting. I think it's also just really exciting to see the FCA, you know, the, the, the regulatory sandbox works. We're on cohort seven. They know that. And they're still iterating on it. They're like, you know, they're, they're following their own advice. They're going, okay, what can we do next? How can we make this better? How can we support a wider range of companies? Um, and I know for a fact that one of the reasons the FCA loves its sandboxes is because of how much it learns, like how close it gets to the industry through these things, how much it hears about what's going on, what's working, what's not working, you know, where the ideas are. Um, and so I think it's another way for, for the FCA to, 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 you know, another source of information for it to mine, which it considers then as it's, as it's writing new rules, as it's writing new regs, it's issuing new guidance, you know, etc etc so um, I think it's I think it's beneficial and I think what we've seen from the FCA before as well is that they adopt that startup mentality and if it doesn't work they'll go didn't work we won't do that again um, so I think I think why not the, I love the idea of it as a benevolent honeypot uh, in that it's it's kind of come come here startups we want to learn from you um, and and actually there is a bit of a and also we won't kick you um, we genuinely want to learn. And, and that's quite interesting. Uh, Oscar, we've seen a number of things come through um, the regulatory sandbox. We've seen a number of, uh, kind of regulators around the world now do similar initiatives. Do you think this digital sandbox thing will catch on and, and what's going to be the upside of it? I mean, it, it definitely makes sense, as Sarah is saying. And it, I, I could see it catching on. But I suppose in terms of the upside, the thing that stands out for me about this initiative is Obviously, I think it's the right thing for them to do, and it's all very well for them to, to go about it, uh, to, to do it. But the, the, what the, the coronavirus crisis has shown us is without the sort of joined up thinking across the piece of politicians, regulators, central banks, uh, you're going to continue to have these people struggle to a certain extent. And by that, what I mean is, in my conversations with a lot of the sort of um, lending businesses, a lot of the digital lenders who help SMEs, help with SME financing, one of the things they say is we need access to the cheap financing that the Bank of England is giving uh, to the banks to because if not, there's no way we can compete with them because they are, uh, you know, getting money at such a discount to what we can raise that they're always going to be able to undercut us on price when it comes to lending to SMEs. At the same time, you've got the government handing out these loans, the bounce back loans at 2.5%. Well, that's not affordable for so many SMEs and bounce back loans has been by far the biggest source of funding uh, during the crisis. It's, I think, 38 billion of um something like i think it's about 75 billion has been borrowed by corporates and that's the largest single source so you know yes it's great that they're trying to get new innovative ideas but what we've seen recently is that it, with the stroke of a pen the people elsewhere in in the sort of positions of power can undermine these initiatives yeah, it's a real unfortunate thing because I'm very excited by the possibility of data-driven regulation and, and starting to um, really bring audit and data governance into, instead of reg reporting being kicking out a PDF, it, it's really like, let, let me see the underlying data. Let's collaborate on this together. Let's learn. And if you're a startup with a neat new little fraud detection tool, where do you go to get a data set to train your ML? Actually having the regulator provide that could be could be pretty cool. So I think as an initiative, it's really interesting. Um, Maya, just 
before we close out on this, as you look at this with a U.S. lens, I know the OCC has been quite active on a fintech charter. I know a number of folks have started, a number of the regulators have got their own labs. Do you think labs generally are good and can being data-driven help? You know, I'm, I'm excited about uh, the way that I view the labs that these regulators are making is as sort of this olive branch being expend, extended to the tech industry where the regulators are saying like, look, we recognize that you're here to provide consumer value and you're trying to, you're trying to be good. Um, and like, let's make this easier for us to communicate on the same level about what consumer protection means and, and how, you know, how to treat consumer data well. So I don't know that labs is the perfect solution, but I think that the message behind it, like I said, this olive branch and this enthusiasm around like, let's find the middle ground between regulators and the pace that tech companies want to move is the most important piece. And I think that's really encouraging. I bet we'll iterate past the labs to find an ultimately better solution. I don't know what that is today. Um, but I definitely think things are trending in the right direction. Yeah, let's see if this digital sandbox is it. The idea of it being digital or more data driven could be could be kind of interesting, um, rather than PDFs, which we which run our lives still in financial services to a certain degree. All right, I gotta move us to the ad break. So uh, we'll take a quick pause and we'll be right back when we hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech, combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology. Only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levers, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. You can discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools that offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. Oh, and in case you missed it, we just launched two brand new shows on our LinkedIn page. And if you love our podcast, you should definitely check them out. Every Tuesday, we deep dive into the biggest banking and fintech news stories with our show Newsroom. Uh, you may have heard us talking about the Cedars and crowdfunding thing earlier. That was from Newsroom. You can check it out. Uh, we've already had great episodes on the FinCEN files leak and uh, many other things. You can listen back on uh, LinkedIn or YouTube now. And every Thursday, we speak to some of the biggest experts in technology and financial services about the work they do and their careers. You'll have a chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry. So what are you waiting for? Search for 11FS on LinkedIn and follow us to start catching the streams. Thanks and on with the show. Already diving into the second half of the show, um, the story uh, this week that uh, probably caught most people's attention, uh, I mean, we covered this on, it's covered on CNBC, but it was just about everywhere. Venmo is launching its first credit card with a scannable QR code and personalized cashback rewards. Uh, of course, Venmo is expanding its card offering now to include a credit card. This credit card is issued by Synchrony and backed, of course, by the Visa network. The card has a soft launch first available to a random percentage of Venmo customers who have a Venmo account for more than 30 days and have been active in the past 12 months. The card is expected to be available to more US Venmo users in the coming months. Approved Venmo customers can benefit from a cashback program tailored to the categories they spend in the most, as well as easy account management from within the app. The cashback categories are flexible and dependent on where you spend the most money. And the user does not need to manually change those categories. The changes all happen behind the scenes. The cards also come with a unique QR code, which friends can scan to send payments through the Venmo app. There are no annual fees. Uh, so to give us a uh, US perspective on this, we spoke to Marcel King, who's the CIO of Payverus. Let's hear from him now. Venmo's massive user base gives them a nice pool in which to cross-sell their new credit card, but they've gone the extra mile to create a holistic experience to increase appeal and hopefully conversion rates. The instant virtual card that's added to the wallet allows the user to immediately make purchases instead of waiting for a physical card to show up in the mail. And the personal finance tool helps them attract spending habits that should help the user manage their money a little easier. Although cashback rewards are nothing new to credit card reward programs, the Venmo cashback program is especially appealing if the cardholder can pay off balances at the end of each month to minimize interest charges. 
Although the physical card looks cool and serves as a proxy to the cardholder's mobile phone QR code, it'll be interesting to see what the adoption rate is for a friend scanning the QR code on the phone versus a QR code on the card. The only other negative I see is the convenience associated with the card seems stronger than the debit card, which could encourage more consumer debt, creating a possible negative impact on the user's financial health. That said, my advice to innovators, strategists, and digital banking managers in the traditional brick and mortar space is that one, be aware that the biggest threat to your business isn't just the other banks and credit unions in your geographic market. It's all of the fintech companies that are creating better experiences with underlying traditional banking products. Two, you need to be thinking about how to stay two to three steps ahead of the fintechs because if you're only thinking one step ahead, you'll get past. And three, Make sure you have the right technology in place that allows you to actually stay two to three steps ahead. Your 20-year-old legacy technology just won't cut it. Spot on. Um, Maya, any thoughts here? Yeah, I think exciting news from Venmo on the credit card, not entirely unexpected. Um, the details are still fuzzy, and I think my assessment of the program is going to depend on the details. So I think it'll be a really strong offering if it leans into Venmo's core strengths, which is the social network and payment splitting. If this is a really slick, like one person pays for dinner and it automatically, you know, uses the location of your phone to charge the correct amount to each of your friends that are there at dinner with you, um, I think that's really, really exciting. If it's just we have this massive user base and we're grasping at straws for how we can monetize them better, maybe we can give them a credit card. The credit card that itself is not that interesting to me. I think the rewards, it seems very similar to HM Bradley's card. Even Bank of America has a card that's really similar. I think the idea of automatic top cashback categories is something that is dreamed up by academics that is not something that resonates with consumers. I think I can just imagine the meeting where someone's like, it's annoying that I have to use my restaurant card every time I'm at a restaurant. What if your card could do that for you? Mm. But I don't think that value prop actually resonates um, with consumers. And I think that they hinted at the, you know, you mentioned, Simon, the 30 days. Is Venmo actually qualifying people without the credit score? Because that would be really interesting, particularly from a financial inclusion play. Um, as you know, credit scores in the United States are crazy um, and lock a lot of people out of financial services. So if they're actually doing that, I would find that the headline news. My guess is that they're not doing that and they are using credit score. Um in part because how could you underwrite someone based on their peer-to-peer -peer transactions? It feels tricky. Yeah, it feels hard, but it, it would be a starting point if you, they had the debit card and then they got this. So I wonder how this how random is this subset of users that are getting this and how, how much time is it going to take before they roll that out? Because massive, massive need, as you say. Um, Sarah, what are your thoughts? Um well, I mean, I'm, I'm not as au fait with the US market, obviously, as Maya. Um, I, I quite like the idea of like getting cash back depending on what I spent more on that month. Like if I spend a lot on eating out, which I just did last month because I was on holiday and getting, you know, 3% back on that. But then this month, actually, my gas bill is higher, so I'll get 3% on that. Basically, in the UK, we're really starved. So the only cash back options we have are like, always set to like utilities. So I, I quite like that idea, but I don't know the market. So that that's just appeals to me, but maybe I'm a subsection of one. Um, I really want to know more about Maya's idea of the community because it could be a really good way to get all your mates to sign up the Venmo credit card. If like when you split the bill, you split the cash back as well. So like if I paid for dinner and it was $50, I don't know how much hundred dollars and I got three percent on that but then I split it with Oscar and he paid 50 quid and we both got three percent on that 50 quid instead then it would be a really good way to say you should definitely get this card and then you'd have like building out of that community element I don't know a how hard that would be or b if Venmo would consider it um or there's also an option there of course like if you get your mates on it you get four percent cash back I don't know do you know what I mean there's kind of there's kind of ways that they could use it to build out the community and get more people using it really tap into those network effects and, and make it much stronger. I think that's a really cool idea. And, you know, this is a kind of a low-tech thing to put the QR code on the card itself. But I actually think that's really cool. Um, I've had people pay me on Venmo before by showing them the QR code on my phone. And honestly, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that because my phone is such a personal extension of myself. I get very personal notifications sometimes. And so I'm generally reluctant to show my phone to other people. Um, and I really like that now I could have the QR code on my phone and make it really easy for people to pay me with Venmo. 
not least because, sorry, Simon, I was just going to say, like, um, not least because scanning a QR code on a phone is sometimes a blinking nightmare. Over here, we have train tickets that work like that. And you often spend five minutes with the conductor, like trying to hold your phone still, and then it goes fuzzy, and then you have to blow it up and shrink it down. Or like when you have a boarding pass and you have to, the, 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 you know, the, the flight attendant's trying to bring up. So if it's on a card, you just put it on the table and it's so much easier to scan. It's, it's just literally easier to do. Try buying drinks in a nightclub with QR codes or anywhere <laughs> dark generally in Southeast Asia. Just like it, it's near impossible. It's not. It's a suboptimal experience. But it, as a rule, I hate QR codes. As a rule, I hate gimmick debit cards or cards generally. But I love this and I don't know why. And I think it, to your point, Maya, it's about the community side of it. And maybe QR codes are having their moment because of the pandemic. And we're getting used to having to, to use that in certain contexts. But they work really well for offline to online. And that's exactly what this is. This is like where we don't already have the connectivity, but we have this offline community and it bridges that really nicely. Uh, Oscar, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, two things. Just just to, to your point, everyone's talking about the QR codes. And I immediately sort of thought, interesting. But, you know, to me, I feel like we need another a step, really. It, it feels like QR codes are kind of a bridge in this conversation. To me, what would be fun would be, well, what if you do some hardware engineering in the card and you can just tap the card on somebody's phone or something like that, or you tap your phone on the card and then... You could do that already with NFC. Like, you well, can sure. do do that stuff already. And and there's a number of fintechs that have the pay near me thing. Uh, but but that sort of like... Um, I think Apple acquired MobiWave to potentially make that easier and turn devices into pauses and genuinely do peer-to-peer and that make it easier. Sarah, we got uh, another thought from you there? I was just going to say, and Maya might hate me for this, but is it because in America they are they're a little bit behind the idea? You correct me if I'm wrong, but like tap to pay is not really a thing for an awful lot of the population there yet. So tapping to your phone against somebody else's card is possibly a bit far. I don't know. I, I may be being rude, but from my understanding, that it's <laughs> kind of like the yes, here, Oscar, I'll tap your card, and that's brilliant. We'll do it. But I don't know if in America the habits they've kind of gone this way because it meets the current habits. Right. Even, I mean, no, and I, Sarah, I totally agree with you. I mean, the U.S. is behind um, in terms of like consumer adoption of, of all of the latest financial financial technology, uh, tap to pay, as well as QR codes and things like that. We have seen a little bit of a resurgence because of the pandemic in QR codes and even in tap to pay. So my mom actually set up Apple Pay for the first time because she didn't want to touch the card system because of the pandemic. And she said, Maya, this is amazing. It's so fast. It's so easy. She's raving about it. And I said, mom, you know, I've been trying to get you to do this for years, but she was never properly incentivized until the pandemic. So there has been a little bit of a resurgence, um, a little bit of a change in consumer behavior. I think it's too early to say if it'll stick or not since still pretty fragile at the moment. Indeed. Well, we'll keep watching this one, but uh, let's hope that there is some community building coming from the guys at Venmo, and we'll keep watching the story and come back to it. Uh, the next story comes from Business Insider, an, an outlet that I think both Sarah and Oscar know very well. Um, the story is the Goldman Sachs uh, reportedly just landed General Motors' credit card business for roughly $2.5 billion. Um, so the Wall Street Journal reported in August that Goldman was looking to acquire the GM business away from Capital One. If it happens, the deal gives Goldman more than one million GM cardholders and approximately $8.5 billion they spend annually. Uh, landing GM's card business would be Goldman's second co-branded consumer credit card and mark another significant step in the consumer lending business uh, following the underwriting of the Apple card in 2019. And according to the Wall Street Journal, Goldman and Capital One have reached an agreement on the general terms of the deal and the plan is to finalize the details in the coming weeks. Goldman's also shuffled its divisions to create a standalone consumer division that includes its Marcus lending unit. The changes will go into effect on January the 1st. Uh, Maya, how significant do you think this is? You know, I think this is a sign that Goldman likes their partnership with Apple and is here to stay in credit cards. I think that the way that I think about it is that Apple was really their test case and the fact that they're looking at GM and moving forward with this purchase, um, I think means that they're going to be a significant contender and that we should expect to see more from them um, in the credit card space. 
indeed and and their tech platform with marcus in the consumer and card space is, is quite a bit newer than some of their competitors so potentially they can do more um, and it was built always with the intention of always almost being the intel inside model where yes they've got their marcus brand and that proves the platform but now they can do these partnerships and then potentially en- enable the rest of the market with more of an as a service model um sarah w- what are your thoughts do you think more brands will will go this way and and, and how do you think it changes the shape of the market yeah, it's interesting because I it hadn't occurred to me really that it would be joint branded. I thought they were just acquiring the book because we've seen quite a few um, acquisitions of, of that nature happen. You know, notably here in the UK, we have Tandem and Harrods, which will just never get old. It will always, always entertain me, um, mm-hmm. that decision. Um, but I, I, I'd missed that. So um, I fully am behind the idea that, that Goldman is going all in on its consumer platform. It's spending a lot of money on this, as this shows. Um, it's obviously an easier way of doing it than trying to like build up a customer base. It is interesting, though, because I would have thought that there are enough Marcus customers on the both the savings and the lending side now that you might be able to just go out there with your own credit card and 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 see. You know, I would have thought that would land well. Um, but again, I, I don't really know the the strategy. I think the strategy is interesting. I think I understand that Goldman's going after consumers, but every time it does something, I'm like huh, wouldn't have seen it that way or wouldn't have seen it, them doing that next, you know, that kind of thing. So I think somebody over there has got a completely different brain to me um, in the way they see this playing out. And maybe it's just they understand the, the US market better because, of course, we do have markets here in the UK, but the only the only product we still have is the savings account. We don't have the app. We don't have the loans. We don't have any of the other products. Um, and, you know, Marcus's uh, foot in the door into the UK savings market was um, an incredibly good interest rate. Its interest rates have fallen and fallen in line with everybody, every other bank's interest rates. So um, it's interesting to see that I wonder if they've kind of doubled down on the US and given up on the international play, or maybe that's just a condition of the markets um, and what their strategy is in the US. I'm still, I'm still pondering it. I don't, I, it could be a great move. It could be a terrible move, but I still haven't got my head around quite what they're trying to do. So D- don't forget, Goldman Sachs is still an investment bank led by a CEO who came from their investment banking division. You know, they love deals. They're, this is a company that likes facilitating and doing <laughs> deals. You know, that's their bread and butter. Uh, I mean, the thing the thing that I found interesting, for, just on this story, uh, of course, you know, Sarah and I both used to work at Business Insider, so I'm always happy to see them get a mention. But the actual scoop came from the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal's report sort of uh, uh, details the fact that both – well. Uh, Goldman were up against Barclays for the in this deal, and both Barclays and Goldman, key part of their pitch to GM was saying the future is in car commerce. That's their sort of view on this deal: is that you'll be in your car and you'll say, "Hey, GM, whatever, order me a Starbucks, and I'm getting to my drive-through or whatever, something like that." Um, and that, to me, I find quite interesting. Is again, as that so, to, to your point about building in as a sort of platform, what if you put it in the car and you're, you know, building in that? That's And who has the more credible story on embedded finance, the the long-term affinity co-brand business like Barclays is in the US? Co-brand has been around forever in the US, but it really was somebody else's logo on the same old card with different numbers and, and, and different marketing materials. Whereas actually this newer platform, what, what does it give them? Is it really sort of embedded finance? Can they actually start to get towards that sort of stuff? Can they enable that future? Uh, time will tell. Um, Maya, any last thoughts on this one before we move to the next story? Nope. All righty. <laughs> I'm getting the shake of the head, so I'm just going to move us right to the next story. Um, all right. This comes from fastcompany.com, and it's uh, about the new checking account that Credit Karma's launched. They want to get into your wallet. So um, the checking account from Credit Karma will be available to the 2.5 million members who already have a Credit Karma savings account. Uh, once fully launched next year, the product will have incorporated features, including a rewards program, which will give out cash prizes for good financial behavior feels a little bit Pavlov's dog, but um, the checking account will not charge fees and will include automated features designed to help users better manage their money. The data collected from the checking account will also help the company better present its members with targeted advertisements for loans, credit cards, and more. Uh, The checking account space is, of course, an increasingly crowded market um, with players such as Chime making basic banking services um, a core of their business. Others such as Robinhood and SoFi are using checking and savings as a way of regularly engaging their customers across currents out there now um, doing lots 
lots of good things too. Uh, Maya, what do, what do you think of this? Is the market getting crowded? Um, do we need do we need more in this space? Simon, I was just saying, I think we should start reporting on which companies are not launching a checking account because that would be more newsworthy at this stage in the game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Gusto, of course, um, is looking to head that way as well. Um, yeah, uh, it's a matter of time till uh, every company you can think of has their own checking account. What do you think the rationale is here for this? Is it because of their proximity to the credit score? And is there a consumer problem here that still needs solving? I know that Credit Karma has always been really interested in the data. And from the strength of the business, Credit Karma has really deep connections with credit cards, right? We talk about like their business model is doing lead gen into the credit card companies, but I actually even think calling it lead generation isn't giving them enough credit because of such deep integrations they've made for those application process. And as a result, credit card companies love working with Credit Karma. Um, and I think that's that's really, really interesting. So the question that I have is, Given that this is Credit Karma's strength, how does the checking account play into that? What kind of data are they going to be getting? What are they going to be doing with the data? And then my second question is, you know, apparently Credit Karma is being acquired by Intuit, although that I've heard rumors that that deal might be falling through. And I know that even if it does go through, the regulators have a lot of concerns about what that means for the U.S. tax prep market. So my question here is, could there be a long-term play where Credit Karma is actually hoping to own people's checking relationships in order to make their tax filing process more seamless and more integrated with the platform? Wow. Okay. I had not seen that. Uh, there is, it's really interesting to try and look at the uh, Magic 8 Ball and try and figure out what, what the answer is here and what the strategy could be. Because uh, the data thing, as you say, Maya, is just gives them so many ways that they could drive that. Um, and what do we think they're going to do with it? Um, Sarah, what are your thoughts here? I mean, I don't have a lot to add on, on the, the American checking market because obviously Maya is completely the expert in that space. Um, the interesting thing to me is the um, the cash prizes for good financial behavior. Um, we have a really, that's really common in this country. It's called prize draws. Um, and in this country, you know, we've had five or six different accounts launched this year where uh, some of them are ISAs, some of them are checking accounts, some of them are savings accounts. But if you put X amount of money into that account, over X months. So one that just launched this week was um, a nationwide mutual bond. It's an 18 month bond. Um, every hundred pounds you put in, you get another chance to be entered into a, you're just basically buying raffle tickets basically for every hundred pounds you save. And then they all go into a hat and then you pull the money out and the people whose numbers come out, they, they win a cash prize. And then of the money you put into the account, a 0.5% is put into the prize fund. So it's a really clever way of, of banks. Um, enticing customers to to come to them, getting new customers, um, and also not having to promise a sky high interest rate, which is what they've done a lot of historically. So in this country, uh, Nationwide has three of these products. Um, a lot of the building societies have them. Of course, we have Premium Bonds, which is the government bank, which has done this for years and years. Um, Halifax has one. So um, it's actually quite common here, the idea that, for, and, and the good financial behavior they're awarding here is putting a certain amount away each month, but they're very clever. So it's 50 to 100 pounds because they don't want a glut of deposits at the moment. All banks have got way too much in the way of deposits. But this is they a just way... Want the data. Yeah, well, they want the data. They actually, they just they, they want the, the customer, because a lot of them, you have to have a current account or another product before you can be entered, before you can get the account that gives you the, you know, the prize entry. So Nationwide's bond, you have to also have a current or credit account with them. And I believe that type of account was until quite recently uh, illegal in the US until a, a law change a couple of years ago. So interesting now, more people are trying to use surprise and delight and create uh, reward mechanisms and incentives to kind of get people saving and towards good financial behavior. Yeah, and it's cheap. It's really cheap <laughs> because you take a percentage of everything that people put in um, and you put it into the prize pot and all you have to do is make sure that they get that 0.5 or whatever it is back. Um, the mechanics of it are, are really are really quite clever. It is. And it does. I mean, the chance of winning $10,000, no matter how small the chance, that sounds better than my guaranteed 0.1% interest <laughs> or what, you know, it's like, even if it's guaranteed that I'm going to get my 50 cents at the end of the year, I'd rather have the chance at winning $10,000. Well, the, the, the nationwide one that just launched, you have a one in 200 chance of winning something, which is actually not bad. Um, uh, I mean, you've got, got worse odds on most things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Oscar, any final thoughts on this before we close out? 
Uh, just that, I mean, you know, it seems like as you going back to the point of every everyone under the sun is getting into the sort of consumer wallet. It's just interesting that we've been talking about Goldman. It's two sides of the coin, isn't it? We've got the the high finance and the tech people all sort of fighting for this market, uh, and and then just finally, uh, it's interesting that. Uh, you know, roll the clock back, what, eight, ten years ago, it was all about unbundling. Now it seems to be everyone's rebundling, you know, the, the credit karmas are adding more onto the tech stack, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, we're rebundling on the consumer end, but we're definitely unbundling behind the scenes when it comes to the infrastructure layer. Um, so that's going to go through the cycle. Everything is cycles of bundling and unbundling, but <laughs> hey, um, it's, it's the universe and figures of eight and all of that. Um, Sarah, do you want to start us off with some story we didn't have time to cover because there's just so much happening in in the past week. Of course. So the first one today is that Starling has launched online banking. Um, So the offering is available for all existing customers, regardless of account type. Uh, It will offer similar insights and services, but customers will now be able to filter transactions between specific dates. Um, That was always something that that Starling was lacking. Um, The service will be, that service will be online banking exclusive. Uh, Customers will also be able to download statements and save them straight to their desktops. Uh, After the initial launch, Starling will continue to add new features to the online banking platform with international payments and applying for overdrafts and loans being next. Um, So I think this was inevitable for Starling. Um, That's for two reasons. One, um, if you look at the features they've started with, filtering transactions between certain dates, downloading statements, you're fine looking at transactions on your phone, but if you want to actually manage your money, if you want to like work out what you spent where and download things for kind of I don't know a mortgage application or something, then people do prefer to do it on a much bigger screen because you, you can see more. Um, and second, it opens them up to a whole new demographic. So there are plenty of people out there who are fine with online banking, um, but they're not necessarily okay with app banking yet. Um, it just gives them it gives them a wider appeal, basically. So um, I think it was inevitable. I think it's a very smart move from them. Indeed, and they did this just after they'd announced they were unputting their first branch hashtag branch out and of course that wasn't a branch that they were opening at all it was a commitment to plant a load of trees um the absolute trolls um i'll admit they had me hook line and sinker i was completely screwed <laughs> um the story comes from pcgamer.com and uh the gaming laptop company and uh, peripherals maker razor is piloting a new prepaid card program in partnership with visa the card combines the option of making digital payments with a virtual card and payments app with physical numbers cards you can carry around with you there are two cards one of which which is your standard offering and an ordinary plastic card or the premium card with Razer's logo on it. The logo glows green and has an inbuilt LED lighting whenever you make a payment. Uh, the new payment card offers 1% cash back on select payments and 5% back on Razer's online store. The card is currently only available to 1,337 people in Singapore. That is, if you're not familiar with gaming elite speak, an elite number of people. Um, it's it's old internet adage. Now, what's, what's I gotta be Razor? Honest, Before you get into the analysis, what's Razor? Uh, so I'm talking to you from a Razer laptop at the moment. Um, I have a Razer mouse. Um, this is the weird logo that they have. I'm sorry, listeners, you can't see it. Um, they produce all kinds of gaming PCs, gaming peripherals. Video game nerds absolutely love them. Um, so it's it's basically an affinity card um, for people like me who probably should have grown out of this stuff a long time ago, but haven't, um, and really like uh, keyboards that light up. Uh, so they've, now there's a card that lights up. Again, I hate gimmick cards, kind of love this, and I'm happy being a hypocrite, and I shall live being a hypocrite. <laughs> but next story, Sarah. No, that's fine. Thank you for the clarification. Um, small businesses face ruin as UK lenders block access to COVID loans. So lenders have been accused of endangering the survival of many SMBs by withdrawing access to the cheap state-backed loans as demand increases. The bounce-back loans scheme was extended until November the 30th, but many financial institutions have cut access to them. The UK government has advertised 28 lenders, but some companies that are still on the list have stopped offering them. Um, In fact, HSBC stopped people even applying for business accounts. Um, Many SMBs that are trying to switch banks will find that most will now only accept applications from existing customers, with several banks restricting this to customers that were on their books before May this year, which is when the scheme launched. Um, as SMBs are desperately looking for sources of help, local authorities in the northeast of England have had to allocate grants by ballot after being overwhelmed with applications in recent days. It's really I want to swear, but I won't. Terrible. Um, it's really bad for small businesses. Um, we're seeing in the UK more local lockdowns coming in, and the first things that are being hit are pubs and restaurants and cafes, many of which are small businesses. 
Um, I think it's I think it's really sad. Uh, I don't know how much of it is the lender's fault as opposed to the government's fault, you know, for the conditions they've put on those loans, because as we've mentioned um, already, that banks are kind of already in a bit of trouble with the having to underwrite, as Oscar mentioned already, having to put out loans at low interest rates, which doesn't bring them enough revenue, which is part of the problem with the savings accounts. Um, the one sort of glimmer of hope is that maybe uh, we see some of the alternative lending and investment platforms pick up slack. I know Funding Circle is one of the few uh, fintech lenders that is actually still offering uh, loans to new companies. Um, so we could see these SMBs are struggling, going and looking for for alternatives, and they may come across some of those alternatives, which um, are based in the fintech community and operate on the likes of open banking, et cetera, et cetera. Indeed, I think we had Valentina Christensen on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying that uh, you know Oak North are lending a, a lot more than usual because the other banks can't in this space. Uh, and there's a good report by the Bank of International Settlements that said that the new lenders are often lending based on the risk of the company in front of them rather than the risk of the entire sector, and that's actually skewing their ability to make policy because they're used to rates moving up and down and banks going risk on and risk off based on the entire market versus um, more sophisticated lenders who are getting better at looking at the the individual company in front of them. So let's let's hope that starts to help out. Well, for a change of gear, um, there's a good story here from TechCrunch in our and finally story. John McAfee has been arrested after the Department of Justice has indicted the crypto millionaire for tax evasion. Cybersecurity entrepreneur and crypto personality, the one and only John McAfee, uh, was arrested in Spain on the 6th of October and now faces extradition to the US over charges of uh, spanning ex uh, tax evasion and fraud. My goodness, that's hard to say. Um, the SEC accuses McAfee of being paid more than $23.1 million worth of cryptocurrency for promoting a number of ICOs and token sales without disclosing what he was being paid to do so. The Department of Justice have also levied a number of uh, counts of tax evasion against McAfee and the DOJ's charges, um, McAfee faced five counts of tax evasion, which each carry a maximum penalty of five years, uh, as well as five counts of willful failure to file a tax return, each carrying a maximum penalty of one year in prison. Um, wow, John Crypto, uh, John Crypto, John McAfee's <laughs> been on a wild crypto ride. Uh, Oscar, what are your thoughts here? I mean, where do you start? Yeah, it's it's... I was just looking up. I mean, it, it, I'm surprised this is what's brought him down. If this is what's going to bring him down, because I was, I was thinking, was that? I could have sworn there was something involving some sort of assault or murder. And I'm just looking up, and there's a headline here: John McAfee ordered to pay twenty-five million dollars over neighbor's murder, and it says controversial figure insists he will not pay. So you know. <laughs> Of all of all the things, I, I, it doesn't surprise me. Is a way is uh, I suppose the, the the what I'm getting to here, <laughs> Sarah. Oh, exactly the same. I mean, it annoys me that tax is what's brought him down. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest. And I'm just amazed it's taken this long, to be honest. I can't <laughs> imagine. I don't know John McAfee. I can't imagine he's paid his tax properly in the war. I don't know. When was whenever the last time Trump paid his, probably. I was going to say, if we're talking about tax evasion, there's someone else that I'm. <laughs> more eager to get on tax evasion. But um, do we think that the news about McAfee is going to affect their plans to go public that was announced uh, a week or two ago? I didn't see that. Do you have some background on, on his company and, and what was announced? Uh, I just genuinely don't know. Oh, yeah. So they um, McAfee is, they announced that they're going public again. They were public and then they went private, um, uh, purchased yes. by a private equity company. And now they've announced that they're raising money in an IPO as well. But I saw that news hit on September 29th. So it's just, was it when I saw it's going public and then I saw he's been arrested? I'm like, are these things related? And I even thought maybe, like maybe John McAfee, the individual, is going public. And I've mixed up my news stories. <laughs> hey, with, with SPACs these days, anything's possible. Like, uh, <laughs> jo, uh, do you know what I love about John McAfee is, yeah, you, people forget McAfee, the antivirus company, and McAfee, the person, and how much influence does he have over the company these days? I, I, I don't know. But he's one of the last of the outlaws. You know, like, it, uh, unlike some other tax evaders that, we, that shall remain nameless, this guy at least... I, it seems dodgy, but also the, the movie will be good. Whereas with the other one, it's just it's just not the same, is it? <laughs> I think on that note, we can call this one to a close. Uh, thank you so much, uh, guests, for joining us. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your company, uh, Maya? Yeah, so uh, find out more about me. Twitter is my number one place. I'm at Maya B, M-A-I-A-B on Twitter. And Chime, 
this is people always laugh at this, but I always recommend following Time's Instagram profile to learn more about Time. It's very funny. It's Instagram.com slash Time. Brilliant. Uh, what about you, Oscar? Well, you can read all my work on Yahoo Finance UK, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am uh, Oscar W. Groot, which is spelled G-R-U-T, bit of a weird one. <laughs> but, but we like you anyway. Um, Sarah, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you. And as for me, at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me, Simon, at 11fs.com. Uh, thanks also to Jeff at Cedars, uh, Francesca at the FCA, and Marcel at Payveris for their contributions. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please remember to subscribe and please leave a review. It helps us make the show better. It helps others find the show. And as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Search for 11FS, Fintech Insider, or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and bye for now. Thank you.